Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Welcome back to another episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Wait, what am I welcoming you back for? You should be welcoming me. It's been months since I've done one of these. And I'm sorry about that, but I am excited to be back now and finally covering some stories that I have wanted to tackle for a while. Zatanna's backup strips in adventure comics from the early 1970s. As you may remember, the Justice League of America both individually and collectively helped Zatanna the Magician find her long-lost father, Zatara, in the pages of Justice League issue 51. After that, she vanished for a couple of years rather than joining the team full-time, for narrative reasons that don't make a whole lot of sense to me. Then, in 1970, she appeared in a backup story in The Flash and another issue of Justice League of America where she helped the team fight a big robot and the champions of Angor. Yes, those champions of Angor. In 1971, she appeared, really just cameoed, in two issues of World's Finest, the latter of which was released in October of 71. Later that same month, Zatanna began appearing in backups of Adventure Comics, at the time headlined by Supergirl. She appeared in five Adventure Comics backups over the next year, issues 413 through 415, 419, and 421. And on this episode of Power of Fishnets, I'm going to tell you about all of them. But first, I'm going to play a promo for another podcast, and after that, the magic begins. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Zatanna's backup stories in Adventure Comics began with a three-part story told in issues 413, 414, and 415. All three chapters, each seven pages in length, were written by Len Wein, illustrated by Gray Morrow, and edited by Joe Orlando. They were cover dated December of 1971 and January and February of 1972, respectively, but their actual on-sale dates were October through December of 71. Since they're short chapters, all by the same creative team telling one story, I'm going to synopsize all three parts together and then give you my review of the whole thing. The first chapter from Adventure 413 begins, On a dark and stormy night in the stately New England mansion of Shadowcrest, Zatara the Magician pours over his collection of occult books. He's so focused on his reading that he fails to notice the spectral demons that appear out of a nasty-looking artifact in the back of the library. 
Elsewhere in Shadowcrest, Zatara's daughter, Zatanna, practices her magic act for her manager, Jeffrey Sloan. He chides her for relying on basic sleight of hand in her act when she could employ truly fantastic magic tricks, such as turning an apple tree into a snake and back again with a spell, Ikans Imoseb Alpa Irt. Jeff convinces Zatanna to take a break from her practice. In the hallway, they meet Zatara, who calls Zatanna a witch, and then casts a spell banishing her and Jeffrey from this realm. Zatara then tells some unseen master that he has done as he was commanded to do. Zatanna and Jeff fall through a shadowy limbo until they land on a surreal, other-dimensional plane. Zatanna is unable to counteract her father's spell, so in order to get back to Earth, they must find one of the magical junctures located on every planet in every dimension that allow passage from one to the other. The Princess of Prestidigitation conjures a magic flying carpet to take them to the juncture, but along the way, the carpet is punctured by deadly spears hurled up from the surface. Zatanna and Jeff leap back to the ground. They are quickly surrounded by savage-looking barbarians. Zatanna casts a spell trapping one of the barbarians in quicksand, and also summons a sword and shield for Jeffrey to defend himself. But he's a tour manager, not a fighter, and the barbarians overwhelm him and knock him out. In despair, Zatanna threatens to turn all of them to dust, but she is clocked upside the head and collapses on the ground next to Jeffrey. The chapter ends with one of the barbarians saying their master will be pleased, and a caption box reading, Continued next issue, The Tower of the Dead. Part 2, The Tower of the Dead, was published in Adventure Comics 414. The barbarians walk Zatanna and Jeff to an ancient-looking fortress built into a mountain. The duo's hands are tied, and Zatanna has a gag over her mouth, but the gag is removed under the condition that she not use her powers to cast any magic spells, else Jeff be summarily executed. Zatanna and Jeff are brought before Varnu, the king of this weird land, who says he promised to dispose of them in order to pay off a debt of knowledge. Jeff mouths off and is beaten by Varnu's guards. Varnu then takes his prisoners on a journey across the land, mounted on riding beasts that look like ostriches. They travel long and far until they come upon a dread site, an ebon castle called the Tower of the Dead, so-called because no one who has entered the place has ever come out. Varnu locks Zatanna and Jeff in the tower. Zatanna quickly casts a spell untying their hands and another creating a torch to guide their way. They head up the stairs, tracking a mystical vibration sensed by Zatanna. On their way, they are surrounded by corpses clad in medieval armor and weaponry. The Maid of Magic uses her powers to bat away the army of the damned. She and Jeff make it to the top of the tower and find the dimensional juncture, the same portal they were seeking in the last chapter that can send them home. It will take but a minute for Zatanna's magic to align the juncture with Earth. But in that minute, the two are attacked by a monster named Gorgonus. He's a giant with snakes for hair, not unlike a Gorgon. Jeff tries to elude Gorgonus, but the monster grabs the man and in its hideous gaze turns Zatanna's manager to stone. Gorgonus then turns to Zatanna, but she casts a magic spell that multiplies her image so the Gorgon doesn't know where to look to freeze her. In that moment of hesitation, Zatanna knocks him into the dimensional portal, but without being prepared, Gorgonus falls into endless nothing. But, while the threat of the Gorgon is over, its effects are not. Zatanna goes to her friend, frozen in stone, and begins to sob. Part 3, Kill or Be Killed, is from Adventure Comics 415. The dimensional juncture is ready, but Zatanna won't leave Jeff alone in the tower in his stoned state. 
I mean, he's like a stone statue. Using her magic, Zatanna creates a giant hand to carry the statue. They pass through the portal, falling through Limbo, finally arriving back at Shadowcrest. There, Zatanna realizes that the journey to our dimension also undid the spell of Gorgonus that turned Jeff to stone. She hugs him in relief, but then he shouts out at the sight of the little demons that had earlier come out of the artifact in Zatara's study. The demons attack, managing to rip Zatanna's jacket and shirt, because she needed to show more skin in the story, really. The magician creates magic tweezers that pick up the demons and trap them in a sack. Zatanna goes after her father, and Jeff tags along, ignoring her advice to stay behind where it's safe. They port to Manhattan, where an entranced Zatara has unleashed giant 50s B-movie-style monsters on the city. Zatanna confronts her father, but some dark force holds him in its sway. One of the monsters grabs Jeff. She pleads with Zatara to undo this magic, but he is completely lost and doesn't recognize his own daughter or the love in her eyes. So Zatanna pushes him away and casts a deadly spell, saying, Zatara, die! In disbelief, Zatara falls and his power is undone. The monsters disappear, leaving the city and Jeff safe. The spirit form of the evil sorceress Allura, last seen in Justice League of America 51, the conclusion to Zatanna's search, rises from Zatara's body. Allura needs a host body to stay on Earth and tries to possess Zatanna, but the Princess of Prestidigitation traps Allura's soul in a bottle. Zatara wakes up, having only been knocked out by a tranquilizer injected into him by Zatanna, a bit of sleight-of-hand magic that Jeff used to chide her over. Her father was never in any real danger anyway, she explains, since she cast the spell by speaking the word forward instead of backward. With this menace taken care of and father and daughter reunited, the three of them ride the magical mists back home. The end. All right. Let me tackle the creative team first, because these are two extraordinary talents. First, we've got the art of Grey Morrow, and if you don't know the name or the style, it's probably because he didn't do a ton of superhero stories. His bibliography, though, is filled with comics work in other genres, such as Western, romance, and horror. I think I first saw his work on the Vigilante stories during the world's finest dollar era, or possibly the secret origin of Jonah Hex. Morrow's art is awesome when applied to the right character and setting, and I think these stories definitely qualify. There's a wonderfully simple realism to his work. In later books of his that I've seen, there's occasionally a photo-referenced panel or a face that really hammers this home. I don't see that much in these stories that look photo-referenced, other than maybe Varnu's face in the second chapter. But instead, we get a lot of character in the face and posture of Zatanna and Jeff Sloan. And the settings that he delves into, from the gothic shadow crest to the dark and moody plains of whatever dimension to which the heroes got banished, to the sinister Tower of the Dead, it's like he's applying the best qualities of pulp horror and Conan the Barbarian-style fantasy, with a magician in fishnets in the lead. And it all works. I haven't really thought about who my favorite Zatanna artist is, but if I made a list of the artists who did the best renditions of her... Grey Morrow would be very high on that list, most definitely top three. And then there's the script by Len Wein, that is, the late, very great Len Wein. Len Wein died a couple of months ago, and it wasn't until then that I realized how much I really love his work, and how much his contribution to comics has thrilled me personally. On the podcasting side of things, Len Wein created Swamp Thing and wrote the early adventures of that character, as well as a ton of short horror stories that I have or will cover on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. 
He also created the character of Wolverine and wrote Giant Size X-Men number 1 over at Marvel, which introduced the X-Men characters Storm, Colossus, and Nightcrawler. He laid the groundwork for what Chris Claremont would eventually turn into a 16-year saga on the X-Men comics, and those were some of the earliest comics I read as a kid. X-Men was my jam, and I loved those characters. More recently, I've been reading his work on Batman and Thor comics that I absolutely love. It's a shame that I never would have thought of it when he was alive, but Len Wein is one of my personal favorite comic book writers, based on sheer volume and quality. So how does he handle the Princess of Prestidigitation? Terrifically. First, he gives Zatanna a supporting cast beyond just her father. She's a performing magician, so Wein gives her Jeffrey Sloan, the guy who manages her act. Jeff serves as the friend from her so-called day job, as well as a potential love interest. Now, for the first time, Zatanna feels like a real character of her own, not just a recurring guest for the Flash or Green Lantern. And Jeff is a great straight man muggle. In the world of the true magic that quickly becomes a life-or-death struggle in some dystopian Robert E. Howard landscape, we need a POV character to help us, and Jeff fits that description, while also dishing out smart-ass comments for the sake of levity, which is just what most of us would do, or would try to do in that situation. Jeff is us and don't we envy him for spending time with a woman like Zatanna? As for the actual story, it's pretty good. When you read it all together, it's fun and roughly the same page count as a full-length comic. I wasn't sure how I felt about Zatara being corrupted right after we had Zatanna's search for him go on for so long, but Ween and Morrow make it work, and it is nice that the mastermind behind it all was a familiar face and name, the evil sorceress Allura from JLA 51 but we also get a few new villains introduced in Chapter 2. First, Varnu, who is a pretty generic evil mystic, but Grey Morrow makes him look really cool in a very simple way. He's got a red hooded cloak, he looks like a cross between a monk and a cardinal, and that combination of magical and political power really works with a simple menacing look on his face. There's also Gorgonus, an 8-foot-tall giant gorgon wearing a loincloth. Usually when it comes to Gorgons, people think of Medusa, but I'm glad Ween and Morrow tried something different. The half-naked masculine physique is a nice contrast to Zatanna's femininity, and the fantasy element of the classic snake hair is a nice threat for someone with Zatanna's power set. I wouldn't mind seeing either of these villains pop up again as foils for the Mistress of Magic. And I think we're going to see one of them in the very next story, which I'll get to right after this promo break. Don't go away. This be some spread. Gambit not gonna be playing solitaire tonight. Gambit, what are you doing over here? Talking to yourself in the third person. And what's all this food? Oh, Professor, Gambit have plans tonight. Once Cher shows up, Gambit gonna wine and dine her. Then we gonna listen to Fan Holes, the pop culture podcast made for the fans by the fans. Fan Holes? I'll not have my school turned into a den of debauchery and science fiction trivia. No, Gambit. You'll just have to perform your obscene mating rituals elsewhere. Uh-oh. Sound like the professor getting a little cranky. Gambit think it's time for you to go to bed. What? What are you... Ow! Unhand me at once! 
Unhand me, you swamp-fed ignoramus! Relax, mon ami. Gambit just gonna tuck you in real nice. Uh, X-Men, emergency help! Curse you fan holes! Hey, don't mess with the fan holes! Weekly content on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com That damn song is stuck in my head now. Thanks a lot, Pete Holmes. My mind! After the three-part story by Ween and Morrow, Zatanna took a short break from Adventure Comics, but she came back in issue 419, cover dated May 1972. This story called A Nightmare Called Gorgonus... Hey, remember when I said one of the bad guys from the last story would come back? Can you guess which one I meant? This five-page story is written by Len Wein again, but this time Dick Giordano handles the art chores. In the old Edison Theater, Zatanna practices her magic stage show for a crowd of one, her manager, Jeffrey Sloan. She turns some scarves into a hissing snake with a spell, Sevrax Emosev Repive. Jeff continues to condemn her for using sleight-of-hand tricks instead of her actual magic powers. She refuses to compromise the theatricality of her show and throws the snake at Jeff, but what lands in his lap is not a venomous serpent, but a bouquet of roses. Jeff calls a break and asks Zatanna out to dinner. As they're leaving, they hear something, or someone, lurking backstage. Probably the night watchman's cat, Jeff says, realizing then that the watchman doesn't have a cat. Zatanna and Jeff search the labyrinthine backstage, ducking around props and set pieces. They don't find anything out of the ordinary, but Zatanna senses some bad vibrations in the area. She begs Jeff to hold her because she's scared, obviously forgetting for the moment that she's fought alongside the Justice League of America. Regardless, Jeff does not comfort her because he's pulled into the shadows by an unseen figure. Zatanna calls out to Jeff, but the one who answers her summons is none other than the brutish Gorgon known as Gorgonus, like from the title of the story. Yes, it's the same Gorgonus from a few issues ago, the monster who attacked them in the Tower of the Dead, but fell into the portal, doomed to drift through the sky forever. Zatanna surmises, somehow, that when she and Jeff eventually used the portal to travel back to Earth, Gorgonus was caught up in their wake and materialized here as well. Now he wants Zatanna to use her magic to send him back to his home in the Tower of the Dead. Zatanna tells him that trick is beyond her power, and unsurprisingly, he doesn't like that, so he lashes out at her. But Zatanna says, Ramra Tesetorp M, and a prop suit of knight's armor comes alive to protect her. The Gorgon is too strong, though, and the armor is destroyed. Zatanna summons a magic carpet to put some distance between her and the monster, but she's too slow. Gorgonus grabs her by the leg and pulls her down. He tells her to gaze into his eyes and turn to stone. Zatanna pulls a length of scarf from her sleeve and wraps it around Gorgonus's head, simultaneously negating his power and proving that her sleight-of-hand trickery is every bit as formidable as her magic. The monster rips the scarf off his head and tells Zatanna she won't escape again. The maid of magic has repositioned herself and challenges him to try his fearsome gaze again. 
Just as Gorgonus looks directly at her, Zatanna casts a spell, turning herself invisible, causing the Gorgon to stare at the object directly behind her. But said object is a mirror. Gorgonus realizes he's been tricked, but it's too late. Zatanna finds Jeff a few minutes later. He wakes up, complaining that he didn't even get a look at the creep who knocked him out. Lucky for Jeff, as Zatanna reveals that the sight of Gorgonus's reflection in the glass turned him into a harmless stone statue. Okay, first up, the change in artist. If you're a fan of Bronze Age DC stories, you know Dick Giordano, either when he's penciling his own stuff or, more often, embellishing others. And I love his work. I think he's sort of halfway between Neil Adams and Carmine Infantino, and that's a great place to be. Giordano makes Zatanna look gorgeous. He makes the Gorgon look threatening, and he makes Jeff Sloan, you know, on model. I have nothing bad to say about the art in the story, except that... It's not by Grey Morrow. Now, that's hardly fair, but it is the fact that this story, when reviewed with the previous three, suffers by comparison. Taken on its own, this art is all aces, but as a follow-up to Morrow, yeah, I'd rather have Morrow. Looking at the details of the story, I am glad that Gorgonus was brought back for another story. He's a simple type of monster, so I don't think he would merit a third appearance ever, but it is nice that Lenwing didn't forget about him right away. Really, there's only one thing I don't like about this story. The obvious moment where Zatanna forgets that she's a superhero with legit reality-altering superpowers, and she asks a man to hold her because a strange sound scares her. Beyond that bit of chauvinism from the script, Zatanna is assertive about her stage show and how she uses her powers. She's quick-thinking when threatened by danger, she tries to talk to Gorgonus about the situation before attacking, and when she does decide to fight, she uses a combination of pure magic and trickery in clever ways that saves her. If you forget and forgive that one bad damsel moment, this is one of, if not the best depictions of Zatanna that we have seen since her creation. So, how do you follow this story up? With Adventure Comics 421, cover dated July 1972, Zatanna stars in the backup story called The Brave and the Broken, written not by Len Wein, but by Mr. Steve Skates and illustrated by Wynne Mortimer and Frank McLaughlin. A man is walking down the street at night, thinking to himself that he needs to get his courage back when he sees a car without a driver barreling down the street towards him. Not just him, in fact, there's an old blind man crossing the street, also in the path of the runaway car. The man is so scared by the sight of oncoming death that he's frozen in place, unable to move or even to try and save the life of the blind man. At the last minute, he leaps away, saving himself and leaving the other man to die gruesomely. That is, if not for the timely intervention of Zatanna the Magician, who casts Rack Rapsid, causing the car to disappear. Zatanna confronts the cowardly man and recognizes him as Dale Thomas, a local private investigator. He explains how he used to be brave, but lately he's afraid of everything. Maybe he's just too old for this business anymore, he thinks. Zatanna takes him for a walk, letting him vent his frustrations. He thinks the Karstag Syndicate is responsible for his paranoia. Zatanna wishes her magic could restore his courage, but her thoughts are interrupted by a gunshot and a bullet that whizzes by their heads. Dale quakes with fear as Zatanna casts a spell that turns the rest of the gunman's bullets into wet sponges. As the Mistress of Magic scares off the gunman, Dale spots a stone pillar come loose and fall towards Zatanna. It will surely crush her if Dale doesn't do something, but he's so scared. For one painful moment, he agonizes over taking action to save her, remembering that she saved him too. At last, in just the nick of time, Dale leaps out and pushes Zatanna out of the way of the pillar. 
Having taken the brave action of saving Zatanna, Dale Thomas feels his confidence and bravery restored. He asks if she needs an escort to the theater, but she tells him she's fine. Dale walks off, head high and ready to take on the Karstag gang. Zatanna, too, walks off, feeling no desire to tell Dale the truth, that she put herself in danger by creating the pillar out of magic, and that it wasn't really dangerous at all. It was just rubber designed to look heavier, but the act was enough to give her friend his mojo back. Okay, this story is fine, but it's not anything really special. I hate to come down as negative on it, because it really isn't bad at all. Skates, Mortimer, and McLaughlin, they all do a perfectly fine job, but compared to the four previous issues or chapters that we've read, this feels very inconsequential and sort of like a story that any character could have appeared in. I mean, Supergirl is the headliner of adventure comics at this point, and I think she could have substituted for Zatanna in this story. Supergirl probably could have fashioned a way of putting herself in danger, but not really, just to inflate the guy's ego. After the previous stories by Len Wein gave Zatanna a supporting character, a job, some more depth and characterization, this one is just a flat filler story. But I stress, it is not bad, it's just fine. Actually, my favorite part of the story is the tag on the title page. Now, slip into something sorcerous as we present another adventure of Zatanna the Magician. I love that. Slip into something sorcerous. Love that so much. And it's as good a segue as any, so why don't you slip into something sorcerous as we play another commercial? And after the break, I'll read your feedback from the special Web of Fishnets episode where I covered a Spider-Man and Black Widow team-up. Stick around. Hey folks, this is Jared Albrick, a.k.a. The Yard Sale Artist and semi-regular co-host of the Longbox Crusade podcast with Pat Sampson. Pat came to me recently with a fantastic idea on how we might get the podcast community involved in taking some action to do some good. He called this idea Comics for Courage. Comics for Courage is a concept that came to Pat after I told him the fantastic true story of when I was stationed in Iraq during my military service. While there, I received a huge care package of comic books from the awesome folks over at Wizard and Toy Fair magazines. We had so many comics, we didn't know what to do with them all. Seriously, it was over 100 pounds of comics. So me and a couple of buddies took the bounty of comics we had down to the give-and-take library we'd set up in our headquarters building. And you know what? Within 24 hours, all the comics were gone. The bottom line here is that throughout history, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, one thing remains a constant. Soldiers love comics. It's quick easy, fun reading that gives a soldier a taste of home and lets them escape into an amazing world of comics, even if it's just for a few minutes. So here's the best part of Comics for Courage. Pat and I aren't asking you to donate one cent of your money to Comics for Courage. What we would love is for you to donate your excess comics. You know those ones that are just kind of laying around. Just drop them into a box or a big envelope and mail them over to supportourtroops.org. Their mailing address is supportourtroops.org. 13617 North Florida Avenue, Tampa, Florida 33613. Now, they will make sure those comics get distributed to random soldier care packages, and as a person who's been on the receiving end of this, I can tell you it will mean a lot. And if you'd rather donate money than give up a single comic book, trust me, we understand about that, you can donate through their website as well. Again, that's supportourtroops.org. Just remember two things, all right? Two things. One, 
Make sure the comics have good, clean content. No nudity or adults-only comics, please. Those are the rules for any military member receiving goods downrange. Okay, and number two, this is the fun one. Please take a picture of you with your donation stack and post it on Twitter or Facebook at Longbox Crusade. Or email it to contact at longboxcrusade.com. We'd love to give you an on-air shout-out and post your pick on the longboxcrusade.com website. In summary, Pat and I over at Longbox Crusade Podcast would greatly appreciate you taking this small action to make a difference in the life of someone who is far from home defending our freedoms. Thank you for supporting the Comics for Courage initiative. That website, again, is supportourtroops.org. Please check it out. Throw them some comics, make some soldiers happy. We appreciate it. Thanks again. Last episode, I reviewed Amazing Spider-Man 86, which featured the wall crawler fighting Black Widow. She began the issue with her original fishnet costume and molted, I guess, into her more classic black jumpsuit look. Rob Kelly from the Superman Movie Minute, as well as numerous other shows here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, said... The OG Widow costume is seemingly one of the few superhero outfits that no one has nostalgia for. I've never seen it cosplayed or brought back in any way. Even Black Canary's Flashdance outfit has some appreciators these days. Ah, yeah, what kind of fan am I that I don't really like Black Widow's fishnet costume and don't like Black Canary's other costume? Rob continued, I agree a Black Widow movie seems like a no-brainer. The recent series by Mark Wade and Chris Samney looks like movie storyboards anyway. Just shoot that and call it a day. That is a really, really good series. Uh, if you ever get a chance to read the Black Widow by Mark Wade and Chris Samney. Great stuff. I love Chris Samney's work. I can watch him draw anything right now. Uh, Gord Tolton said, totally agree on the Black Widow movie potential. Rogue One proved that we can think about two things at the same time, and in the case of the MCU, we are already conditioned to absorb two to four films and several TV series in a year, so there's no reason the Black Widow can't support a film, and it doesn't have to be a blockbuster. A few solo films, Black Widow, Hawkeye, Nick Fury, etc., with a smaller budget and mid-winter or fall audience, would be perfect to keep the franchise fresh, with no need to keep topping themselves. Just a tale where Scarlet's already notable talents can shine in the forefront. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Siskoid from the internet, Siskoid's blog of Geekery, and four or five shows here on the Fire and Water Network said, I am all for a Black Widow movie slash franchise with or without fishnets. I, I'm, it's it's not a deal breaker or anything, but I would like to see her don some kind of fishnet get up just as an Easter egg for the fans. You know what? It's really just for me. Don't bother with the Easter egg. I just want to see ScarJo in fishnets. Brian Linton said, Wow, I was completely unaware of Black Widow's fishnet phase prior to hearing this episode. I also appreciate the bold steps that you're taking into the wider world of fishnet-themed characters. Now I'm curious to learn who else has a pair of fishnet stockings hidden away in their closet. Dark side, perhaps? <laughs> uh, not dark side that I know of, Brian, but I will step aside again in the near future to cover another Marvel character who wore fishnets in her first appearances. Look for that episode to drop closer to the release of Avengers Infinity War. Chris Franklin from Superman Movie Minute, Supermates, and Batman Nightcast here on the Fire and Water Network said, I'm honestly a bit miffed that Captain Marvel is going to be the first MCU heroine to get a movie over Black Widow. The character and ScarJo have earned that right. And honestly, it still makes me a bit mad that Marvel has the rights to that name and DC has to call Billy Batson's alter ego Shazam. 
I have no problem with any of the characters at Marvel who have bore that name. I just wish that they couldn't. I hear that. I understand that. Um, I guess if you want to split hairs, you could say that the Wasp is actually the first Marvel heroine to get her own movie. Sort of. Ant-Man and the Wasp comes out in July, a full nine months before Captain Marvel. And the Wasp is going to be co-headlining that movie. I mean, she's still sharing it with a man, but it's the first female name to be in the movie. So there's that. Uh, Chris went on to say, Black Widow's original outfit here looks quite a bit like the Black Canary slash original Black Cat pastiche Black Siren from the Justice Guild episodes of the Justice League cartoon. Of course, Natasha came first, but yes, that costume is very dated by Silver Age Marvel standards. I didn't even think about that, but you're right, Chris. Her costume does look like that. Uh, the Irredeemable Shag... Hey, woo! We got a sweep. All of the other Fire & Water Network founders commented on the last episode. Nice. Uh, Shag said, nice mini-episode. Good plot suggestions for a Black Widow film. Why hasn't this been greenlit already? Makes no sense. Hey, that's what I'm saying. Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks YouTube and podcast feed and one of the co-hosts of Punch Like a Girl, which is here on the network. Nathaniel said, love the idea of occasional breaks to talk about other characters who've been in fishnets at some point in their career. Happy to hear that because I will be continuing to do it from time to time. Nathaniel continues, that being said, I don't get why everybody's after a Black Widow movie. I mean, she's on the Avengers, what more do you need? She should just be happy to be there, and she talks too much anyways. Good thing she doesn't have actual superpowers, because PMS would be a nightmare. Really, she should just retire as soon as she finds a nice man to marry. She'd be more suited to homemaking. Go make Tony a pie, woman. Then knit a new jumper for Hawkeye. Come on, Shag, back me up. This has been a test of the Auto Troll 3000. We apologize for any offense. Had this been an actual trolling situation, it would have included a link to a Breitbart article and a survey of MRA subreddit members. Oh man, this reminds me of when I used to say f**k Seb Gorka or whichever member of the GOP pissed me or Rob Kelly off that week as part of the listener feedback. And finally, to clean things up a bit before we go, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl gave some quick thoughts on the actual Spider-Man story that I covered, which I barely remember now, honestly. Uh, Then Martin added, I didn't think the new costume looked good here. I much prefer the original. It just screams Black Widow. I suppose she did need something more contemporary to fit in with the New York superhero set. This is when she became less interesting. The Ramita Mooney art was amazing. Never mind the classic Spidey, there's a stunningly beautiful close-up of Natasha that justifies whatever they got paid for the issue. Wow, Martin is actually preferring the garish fishnets costume to the sleek black bodysuit? Even I wouldn't go there, and I'm the guy who loves fishnets. Anyway, that is all for this episode of Power of Fishnets. Next time, I will be talking about both Zatanna and Black Canary, inasmuch as they both participated in the epic three-part adventure from Justice League of America, issues 100 through 102. Until then... Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. 
All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes only and believed covered under fair use. Since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Oh, darling, 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 wild me. You got so much, so much, so much.